Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So you've been here in the lab for a couple days now, continuously uh, conducting your experiments. And uh, it might not have been what you expected it to be, uh, which means actually it's a good experiment. If it always comes out exactly what you expected, then why did you do the experiment in the first place? Maybe it just confirmed something. But be happy with the surprises and learn from that which confirms. So in this, uh, this lab of Dharma practice of meditation retreat, you get to experiment with this new tool that we're developing of the meditation practice. And this is a different way of knowing than the usual tools that we have at our disposal. And for many people, it may not seem like such a great tool. Uh, many people reported in the beginning days, uh, felt really sleepy, I felt really restless, I wanted to get out of here, I wondered why I came. Um, so if any of you felt that way and didn't reveal this in your groups, just know that you're not alone. Um, that's pretty much a normal part of the experience. But there's something possible to understand here, to learn, that can be extremely helpful for us. And it's in the realm of what is our relationship to experience? What's our relationship to ourselves? I say that all of Dharma is describing for us some uh, right view, so to speak. Some clarity of view about what's true about uh, how things work. And the more that we understand that, the more that we can live in harmony with that, then the happier we'll be, the more peaceful and content our life is, and the less we suffer. So we're doing these experiments with understanding, well, what's actually true about this? And here in the lab, we just sit here doing nothing and paying attention and then see what happens. See what happens in the body, see what happens in the mind. Sometimes the setup is a little deceptive because it seems like we're doing something called meditation. And as I said in one of my groups, actually we're just basically doing nothing in different postures and then paying attention to what happens. <laughs> and it's helpful to remember this if it ever becomes like too serious or uh, like a big deal in some ways. You know, that's kind of the lab experiment, is doing nothing in different postures, sitting and then walking back and forth, and then seeing uh, what is true, what happens. So someone had asked the uh, question about um, rebirth uh, here. Like, well, what is it that gets reborn? It's a very common sort of like question to the Buddhist uh, (laughs) kind of question. But you could think about this even in your own life. Like, what is it that is continuous, if anything, uh, between any of the seeming lives that you've had in this life? You know, in that which we conventionally call our current life. So think about it for a moment. You know, you took birth and you know 
you know, you probably have heard where you were born and you take birth into some family and you have some amount of siblings or not and some parents or not and it was a certain time of the day or night. And then for most of us, you don't remember that much in the early part of life. And then, you know, you learn to toddle around and this and that. And then you take birth at some point in school. So then you're a school kid. And you're of this age and you take birth in a different classroom. And suddenly your universe is all these different kids in the classroom. And then there's a teacher who seems to be like the boss and tells you what to do. And you have to try and learn things. And you get punished for doing something. And then you take birth in a different class and so on. So every year there's a new rebirth like that. And then you finish that school and then maybe you go to uh, work or maybe you go to university, maybe you go to military, something. So you take birth in a new life as an adult. And then that life changes and that life changes and so on. So you you could even think like each different apartment you've slept in or house you've lived in was like a new birth. Every different relationship that you were in was like a new birth. Every car that you drove, every bicycle you owned was like a new birth. You know, you became a parent, then that was definitely a new birth, like literally, but then suddenly a new identity. So what is it that was continuous across all of those identities, if anything? Is there some solid me that experienced all that? And if so, uh, where is that? Who is that? Uh, Can I find that one? So this is among the questions we can answer in the lab. I mean, here we're doing it little by reflection, but through observation. And as you start to pay attention, you see some aspects that uh, it's worth highlighting. You can see these different uh, aspects of our experience such that, for example, Everything is changing as in flux. So this is uh, one of three particular dimensions that was highlighted by the Buddha for us to pay attention to. So in Pali, this word is anicca, or change, or impermanence. So everything has changed. And you might think, like, no, I'm the same person from when I was in high school or when I was a kid, but is that actually really true? Certainly there's some continuity And certainly we can identify some unique story, but actuality of what you directly experience, can you find anything that's the same, that's unique, independent, enduring, in control in some way, that we can call a self that has agency over your life. So the hypothesis here is that you cannot find that, but... You should keep looking if you think there is. (laughs) So first we'll take the physical form, right? So the physical form has actually been changing from the day that we're born. And we know this from the fact that we grow taller and our hair changes and we mature and all of that. And we can look at pictures and see that we look different than when we were a little kid. But this actually goes even deeper than that. So I want to read you a little bit from... um, article that is about uh, the actual age of your human body. So this is called Your Body is Younger Than You Think. And this is an article that was in the New York Times in 2005, and it's talking about uh, something that was a, a new way of uh, estimating the age of human cells that was developed by uh, Dr. Jonas Friesen in Scandinavia. 
So whatever your age, your body is many years younger. In fact, even if you're middle-aged, most of you may be just 10 years old or less. This heartening truth uh, arises from the fact that most of the body's tissues are under constant renewal, and it's been underlined by this novel method of estimating the age of human cells. Cells from the muscles of the ribs, taken from people in their late 30s, have an average age of 15.1 years. The cells that line the surface of the gut have a rough life of only five days. And the average of those in the main gut is only 15 years also. You may think of your body as a fairly permanent structure, but most of it is in a state of constant flux as old cells are discarded and new ones are generated in their place. Each kind of tissue has its own turnover time, depending on the workload endured by its cells. The red blood cells, bruised and battered, travel nearly a thousand miles through the maze of the circulatory system, and they last only 120 days before being dispatched to their graveyard in the spleen. The epidermis, or the surface layer of the skin, is recycled every two weeks or so. The reason for this is that this is the body's saran wrap, and it can be easily damaged by scratching, solvents, wear, and tear. The liver, the detoxifier of all plant poisons and drugs, lasts 300 to 500 days. Even the bones endure non-stop makeover. The entire human skeleton is thought to be replaced every 10 years or so in adults as twin construction crews of bone-dissolving and bone-rebuilding cells combine to remodel it. So this is scientifically true also. And you can feel some sense of the non-solidity of the body as you practice, oftentimes. The the body is made of energy, this changing, moving energy. Uh, Scientifically, this has also been verified. Everything is in change and flux. So then we might have an idea about, uh, well, what about the mental stuff? Well, the mental stuff, it's even easier to reflect and recognize. Things are always in motion. So even from whatever mood you woke up in this morning or uh, had even at lunchtime or had when it started to get colder this evening. Or even during one sitting, you can see the moods and thoughts change so quickly. Uh, There's actually nothing there that is continuous. So I mentioned the first day of this idea about the six sense doors and what makes up our life is this rapid succession of events, of arisings through the different sense doors. So through sight, smell, taste, touch, hearing, and then through the mind itself. So in this uh, way of thinking about it, it's like there are discrete moments of consciousness that arise and pass away. And in some ways, our life looks solid uh, in the same way that a film looks solid, but is actually made of discrete pictures. So it's different pictures that are run together very quickly, and then it seems like there's some solidity to everything. But it's a construction. It's in some ways an illusion, or maybe construction is a better way of describing it. So I found some uh, interesting... um, study about this too recently. This came out this week. Let's see. About consciousness. So the brain produces consciousness in time slices. This is from April 12th. 
So scientists have proposed a new way of understanding how the brain processes unconscious information into our consciousness. And according to this model, consciousness arises only in time intervals of up to 400 milliseconds with gaps of unconsciousness in between. And in this new paradigm, the idea is that there's a two-stage process of uh, processing information. Uh, There's the unconscious stage, so there's a sense impression, and then the brain processes specific features of an object, uh, but analyzes them quasi-continuously but unconsciously with a very high time resolution. Uh, During this time, there's no perception of time, or this is like unconscious processing. And then there's a conscious stage when the brain sort of renders all of this conscious, and this produces the final picture, if you will. So then we're aware of what this is. And this has also been described by the Buddha in like the, the way there's a sense impression and we have a perception of that. So we have these sort of raw sense impressions and a perception arises that identifies what this is. And then the stuff that uh, you know, Rick was describing about the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and then we perceive that to be good or bad and we push it away and all this stuff you know, starts to unfold. Um, but it's, it's interesting, this, this idea, this, uh, this is also in sync with what the Buddha taught 2,600 years ago without all this kind of equipment. <laughs> so we'll come back to consciousness uh, a little bit later, but in this, this six-sense-door model, uh, what we're doing in our practice is, in, in some sense, in the beginning particularly, trying to gain some clarity about what's happening in each of the sense-doors. And this is probably why on retreat it's helpful to just slow down a little bit. You know, and sometimes it's helpful to slow down a lot bit, but at least a little bit to slow down, to give you some chance of uh, being able to catch these different uh, experiences. And you're both slowing down, but at the same time, as you practice with some continuity, your perception, your ability to know what's happening uh, also uh, speeds up, if you will. Or it doesn't actually speed up, but there's more of these mind moments in which you are present. So you get more of a sense of what's actually happening in this sequence. I had a a discussion in one of the small groups today uh, where there's a common common, um, parlance in modern Buddhist teaching that's about the present moment, or it's kind of in in mindfulness, uh, like teaching stuff, like be in the present moment. And it's like the present moment is uh, the place to be and so on. So I'd like to unpack that one a little bit and maybe uh, question, question that, that statement too. So a helpful part of that is recognizing that that which we call the past and the future are actually only happening in the field of thinking in the moment, in the present. Right? So the entirety of what we call the past only exists as a thought in the present, and the entirety of what we call the non-existent future, right? our plans, our ideas, our dreams, what you think, planned you were going to do when you leave here, or eat when you left here, or whatever. You know. uh, it's all a thought happening in the present while you're sitting on your cushion or chair. So it's just helpful to recognize that. Right? Like This is thinking in the present. And in our practice, we're trying to become mindful of the process of thinking, So usually we get really engrossed in the story of it. And here we're just trying to be aware of thinking, like that thinking is happening. 
like be aware of that as an arising event, and then understand the features of it. So for example, that it shows up without you wanting it to show up. That a lot of the thoughts that show up are not ones that you had planned to have during this sitting or retreat or something like that. And then they all pass away too. So all of them are also impermanent. So the uh, interesting part about the teaching that might surprise you here is... uh, Here's a little quote from the Buddha. So it says, let go of the past, let go of the future, and let go of the present. Having gone beyond becoming with mind completely freed, you will never again come to birth, aging, suffering, death. So also the encouragement is to let go of the present. Like, what does that mean? Where does that leave you? (laughs) I should have waited a little bit, right? Okay, the past and the future, you're just getting used to that as not really existing, and now... Also, let go of the present. So uh, a short answer to that would be don't cling to anything, (laughs) including whatever is happening in the present moment that you're taking to be yourself. Another way of unpacking that a little more is even to question that which we are experiencing in the present moment through our sense doors, and not feel like that's the absolute truth of reality in some way. So even our uh, lab equipment, meaning our eyes, ears, nose, uh, all of this, I don't want to say it's faulty, but it definitely is uh, biased in some way. You know, like we take it to be exactly true about how everything is, but it has some kind of leaning. So let's just take one of these sense doors, for example, sight. So we see things a certain way, and we believe that's how it is. So this is not new science, but it's helpful to remind you, I think, in this context, that um, most animals have different experiences of sight than we do. So all of our fellow creatures that we've seen, the deer, the turkeys, the birds, the lizards, the insects, they're not all seeing the same thing that we see because they have different kinds of receptors in their eyes. So the experience of sight is some uh, combination. It's like some co-arising of our consciousness, the way our eye works, and the way that light is. And then there's something that we call sight, and we can believe it's true. But at the same time, for example, uh, a cat... uh, so we have, we have three different cones, right? Like red, that sees red, blue, and green. And then we have something else called rods, which allows us to see like a little bit at night. Uh, and apparently we actually have pretty good, um, we have pretty good, uh, like what do they call it? Um, like when there's a lot of dots on the screen. Uh, resolution. resolution, yes. We actually have good resolution. I'm surprised to hear this. Um, but, for example, cats uh, do not have such good resolution. So uh, for a cat, things seem like sort of slightly blurry compared to our vision. And they're dichromats, so they have only two kinds of cones. So they perceive things the way that a colorblind human would. So red and green is kind of the same to your cat. Right? But they have a lot more rods than humans. So at night, they can totally see better than us. You can notice this, how the cats are creeping around, seemingly, like seeing things much better than us. 
uh, let's see, bees are trichromats like us, but instead of red, green, and blue, their three photoreceptors are yellow, blue, and ultraviolet. So this lets them see uh, the patterns on flower petals better, so they can find pollen. Uh, birds are like us, uh, or birds are actually tetrachromates. They have four types of cone cells, so they're more like the, um, the uh, no, they're, they're, they have four, the bees have three. So they see red, green, blue, and also ultraviolet. And some of the birds of prey do have sharper vision than us. You can see the, the hawks like way, way up, and suddenly they dive down, right? So, but they have a, a kind of combination of vision. They have the kind of vision that we can get with binoculars, but then they also have the combination with the ultraviolet. So we don't have, usually have like machines that help us to see in that exact same way. Uh, rattlesnakes, then. Rattlesnakes have a low resolution of color vision during the day, but a lot of rod cells to see well at night. Uh, and they also can sense infrared light. So they have especially sensor, sensory tools called pit organs. So holes on either side of their snout between the eye and nostril. And this is a thin membrane that detects heat. So there's a certain kind of neural receptor that's been uh, discovered in rattlesnakes. And interestingly, it's also a similar receptor to what we have, but it's not uh, used for us to transform light into nerve signals, but it's the same receptor that allows us to, uh, that triggers pain in us when we have wasabi or hot mustard. <laughs> but for snakes, it responds to the heat of a nearby prey, so they sense in this different way. Right? Uh, and then, you know, it could go on. Cuttlefish, this is interesting. Cuttlefish basically just see uh, gray and white, shades of gray, black and white. Uh, but they have this ability to. Uh, experience polarized light in a way that we only do when we have certain sunglasses on, right? and they can play with polarization. So all this to say, you know, things are not as they seem, <laughs> right? And we have a certain um, human-centric view, uh, us-centric view that's like, oh, this is how it is, but uh, there's a lot of relativity that we can uh, understand uh, when we consider this. So it's part of our like humans in the center of the world kind of thing that we do. Humans in the center of all beings, uh, which is not even necessarily true. So I'll share with you a, a story uh, that illustrates this, our illusion of this. As a piece of news that was going down while you were away, was that uh, it was revealed that Inky the octopus has escaped from its aquarium in New Zealand. And uh, Inky the octopus, this actually, he, he made the escape like several months ago, but the, the aquarium only uh, admitted it now. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently uh, Inky slipped through a tiny gap left by maintenance workers at the top of his enclosure. And as they could tell by the tracks, he made his way across the floor to a six inch wide drain uh, and he squeezed his football-sized body in, uh, and that drain actually went to the Pacific Ocean. So he made it to freedom, right? <laughs> 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 so, 
So Inky had resided at the aquarium since 2014 uh, when he had been uh, caught in a crayfish pot and his body was scarred and his arms were injured. But um, actually their arms uh, regenerate too. So, uh, but they already uh, recognized, you know, we have to keep Inky amused or he'll get bored. And apparently this is true of um, octopuses. Octopuses are are very intelligent and uh, very curious too. Uh, And they're so curious that if you leave anything in their cage, they pretty much will take it apart. So there was a case of an octopus in Santa Monica taking apart a water recycling valve, uh, and then it shot water out of the tank for 10 hours and caused a giant flood. (laughs) Or another uh, octopus that had taken apart a robot submarine that was in its aquarium, um, piece by piece. So octopuses are known to be great escape artists. They can squeeze through the tiniest of spaces. So a 100-pound octopus can squeeze through an opening the size of an orange um, because their body, their muscles are more like what our tongue is like. It's not like a skeleton like this. Uh, And they can lift a lot also. And it said that octopuses are actually very intelligent. They can tell different individuals apart, uh, human individuals, even if they're wearing different clothes. They can recognize different people. Uh, and mainly they postulated that Inky escaped because of curiosity. Mm-hmm. So they're actually solitary creatures, so it wasn't that they were, he was lonely perhaps, but uh, that it could have been just a curiosity slash a drive for freedom. So, <laughs> so these are all qualities that are very helpful for us in our practice, so we can take uh, inspiration from Inky. Right? <laughs> uh, curiosity and a drive for freedom are both uh, excellent things for us to uh, keep in mind. So in this um, emerging science, another uh, area that's been particularly interesting to me, um, particularly living in San Francisco, is around technology and uh, even the field of robots and artificial intelligence. And I have a number of friends who are working in these fields, developing um, robots for different um, purposes. And it's, it's quite interesting, uh, the level to which the robots can uh, be developed. So certainly to do all kinds of physical tasks, right? Uh, like there are robots that uh, have been developed that can carry supplies over long uh, stretches. There are actually like robot uh, kind of suits that can be put on to help people who have a disability to walk and to move. Uh, and then there are also some kinds of social robots that have been created. And this is a new and upcoming area. And you might have interacted with these uh, robots sometimes if you're ever shopping online, and suddenly a little pop-up comes up, and it says something like, like, uh, hi, I'm Allison. Can I help you find something? Right. Uh, and it's not actually Allison. <laughs> it's a social robot. You know, it's, a, it's a bot there. And you type in, like, I'm looking for a knapsack or a backpack the, to go hiking, and then you know, using its algorithms, it will actually respond to you and then point you to certain web pages and so on. Right. So here we have a certain interesting aspect of anatta, right? Like programming, conditionality, giving rise to what seems like a human experience. But what are the shortcomings of this? Like what has not yet been able to be programmed? And they're pushing the field quite far, but uh, recently there was an attempt to create a, a social robot that would uh, automatically 
tweet on Twitter. Some of you have heard about this, right? So Microsoft tried to create a, a bot to uh, speak particularly with millennials, right? And it totally backfired because they were trying to have this robot learn from the language of those around it and from different sites and various things. But um, and then people basically like, uh, as a kind of a joke, but kind of a way to mess with it, created uh, all this conversation that made the robot spew a lot of like hate speech, actually. It was just kind of horrifying, like, oh, this could happen with the bots, but like it was like racist and sexist and anti-Semitic and, you know, and it's a robot, right? But it was like absorbing this and just spewing this out. So from all this, it's, it's a sign like, yeah, you know, this, this kind of artificial intelligence can be created, but there's something that's not there. There's something that is missing uh, that's different from a human uh, experience. Or I'm postulating that it is. Like I have these debates with some friends who are in the robotics field, right? Like what is, what is not programmable? You know, can you make the robot like conscious in some way? And some of it has to do with uh, some things that we talked about in the very beginning of the retreat, you know, this sense of um, like non-harming or a sense of connection to others that helps us to understand and be empathetic. So some kind of like heart connection that guides our actions and some attunement then to what is actually like skillful or unskillful uh, in actions and speech in the world. So you can train these social robots in some ways to even perceive expressions of the face, Um, but it seems like so far they haven't been able to sort of program in uh, this sense of of guidance in some way. But as a Dharma teacher, I'm encouraged to see when people come in retreat, it's sort of like it's already built into all of us as humans. So we're not bots, and we do get hurt by things, and we do actually also hurt each other sometimes. But a lot of times people come on retreat and they report that uh, as they've been sitting, they start to remember a lot of things from their lives, either that they've done to hurt other people or that other people have done to hurt them. And then sometimes even at night and dreams, you know, we'll remember these things. These things will come to us. So if this has been happening to you, this is uh, not unusual and there's nothing wrong with it. In some ways, I see it as the process of us getting realigned, you know, coming back to wholeness that can happen. Is that we recognize all this stuff that we've done that has been like out of alignment. And then we feel that very deeply and with more sincerity in some ways than when we had escape routes to distract ourselves. So it can be a a somewhat painful part of the process, but it also is actually a very uh, encouraging and I would say overall healthy and healing aspect of what happens here. And the Buddha actually talked about uh, two different states that are considered wholesome states of heart and mind, uh, but they might not seem like it at first. And one of them is, uh, they both are related to conscience, I'd say, like having a conscience, which, uh, you know, maybe they can program that into robots, but, you know, I don't know. 
And the first part of having the conscience is like your own internal sense of what would be like an okay thing to do. And shrinking away from doing something that doesn't align with your own sense of what's right. You know, what's like a decent thing to do, like what's a kind thing to do. And then the other aspect is the part that is the side of conscience where you recognize like, oh, if I do this thing, there will be negative repercussions. And this is actually recognizing wisely a cause and effect. So it could be like, oh, if I speed through this light, I might actually hit someone, even if I don't mean to. Right? Or it could be uh, even something about uh, like, oh, if someone knows that I did this, uh, I would feel bad if I get caught. So it includes also that side of things. And the Buddha called these Hiriya Notapa, the guardian spirits of the world, the bright guardians of the world. Uh, One of the uh, commentators, uh, Buddha Gosa, said, this Hiriya Notapa is like there's an iron bar, and then your reluctance to engage in something that is actually unskillful action that would harm yourself or others is like on one side of the stick, it's like the stick is coated in excrement. So you're like, ooh, like, ooh, I'm not going to do that, right? And then the other side is like a red hot burning uh, end of the iron stick. So you're like, whoa. <laughs> so if you notice any of that come up, that like, ooh, or, or whoa, you know. <laughs> it's actually like a, a good, healthy, uh, positive response, right? I want to contrast that, though, with um, guilt or uh, shame or flagellating yourself about it. Right? So the, the helpful way to recognize is like, oh, this was causality. At the time I did this thing, like this thing was done, it was from a space of confusion or selfishness or something, and it had these bad results. Right? So from this idea of like there not being this solidity of self, there's no one to flagellate, really. Like, like, bad me, bad me. There's no me there to flagellate, right? So just recognizing, like, okay, this is something I don't want to do in the future again. Allow the energy of feeling the burn of that to uh, motivate you in some ways, to pay more attention next time. And then go on and do the best that you can. So love, compassion, uh, morality, uh, knowing how we treat each other. So this stuff hasn't yet been built into the bots. And neither has uh, consciousness, really. So consciousness itself is somewhat of a mystery. Uh, It's a mystery for uh, both science and religion and uh, basically anything in some ways. And it might seem like, well, science surely will figure this out, right? Um, but it's good to recognize like the, the instruments of science can measure what the instruments are able to detect. Right? And even in the, in the field of, for example, of um, astronomy, I was reading recently about uh, discoveries about what's called like dark energy and dark matter. So in the 90s, uh, the field of astronomy was fairly certain about the expansion of the universe. So that this idea that there was the Big Bang, the universe was expanding, and then it would start to collapse again. And so there was an idea that we were in a certain time horizon where the expansion was slowing. 
But then it turned out uh, they got a chance to look through the Hubble Space Telescope and in the late 90s and early 2000s discovered that um, based on the way that things were moving in different parts of the universe, it's actually not slowing down. So it's been accelerating. So like, how do you explain that? And they came up with a theory, and it's kind of funny. The theory is this theory of um, that there's a huge amount of energy and matter in the universe that is affecting the way that the universe is expanding that wasn't accounted for uh, in the past. And it's given this name of like dark energy or dark matter, and it makes out, uh, let's see, 68% of the energy of the universe is made of dark energy. And the dark matter makes up about 27%. And then basically everything else that humans have observed and know about with our instruments adds up to less than 5%. So it's, it's kind of funny to me. It's like basically 95% we have no idea. That's what the summary is of this. Like we don't know, you know. Like we can make a name for it and we can chart it and stuff. But basically it's like who knows, <laughs> And I'm laughing about that because there's something freeing about that too, you know. And uh, this, I think there's a, a, a corollary for us in, in Dharma practice and spiritual practice because this is true about our lives too, you know. Like there's there's a huge amount of stuff that we don't know. If it's true that everything is always changing, and if it's true that we're not the master in control of everything, then we don't actually know what's going to happen next. You know, we don't know what the weather is going to be. We don't know what thought happens to show up. Uh, we don't know how the physical body is going to behave. You know, all these things are happening that are not under our control. And they operate well until they stop operating well. So this brings me to another aspect of practice that is really very helpful to... Um, To hold, which is the practice of resting with not knowing. So in some ways we give you techniques and it's like, you know, look at this and see this and all this. But another way of, of relating to your practice is that, let me see if I can practice resting and not knowing. And just see what happens, see what shows up. Notice when it seems like that is stressful and the mind starts to make up stuff. Like it's difficult to not know. It's difficult for it to be quiet. Sometimes you can recognize this from some current, subtle or unsubtle, of anxiety that's going through. And this anxiety can be sometimes high volume obvious and sometimes kind of like a low static underneath of everything. See if you're okay with a period of time in which nothing seems to be either that great uh, or that bad. So when things are kind of neutral. Notice if there's any times in which you're actually quite content in those moments. So this is an extremely freeing thing about practice and retreat is you could notice when maybe you're just doing walking practice and nothing special is happening, and suddenly you recognize like, that you're actually very happy. Like you're actually like, ridiculously content just walking back and forth doing absolutely nothing. You know? 
So don't discount those moments because there's something very beautiful about that. It automatically has freed you from like uh, every drive for acquisition of possessions because in that moment you actually have nothing. Everything you own could have disappeared. Like everything that you thought you were, no one is telling you anything about your name or title or your bank account. And it's like just walking back and forth and the contentment of that or just sitting. So resting with not knowing gets harder sometimes when we come to different cusps in our life, uh, when it seems like there's an accent on, I don't know what's going to happen next. So maybe when we've left a job or relationship or uh, been diagnosed with some kind of disease, uh, when something's happened to someone we love. So then we're really uh, faced with and confronted with this not knowing. Like, I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't know how it's going to be for them, for me. So here's one reason why we call it practice. So practice resting with this. You know, practice being able to be steady with this. You know, not having to squirm frantically into some solution or activity. Practice resting with the not knowing until some clearer idea of what to do can come up from a place of wisdom and stability. So a lot of words here. And the words are sometimes inspiring and helpful and sometimes confusing. So if there's anything that's confusing or uh, you don't agree with, that's actually totally fine. Here in the lab, you could check things out yourself and see what seems to be true. And the rest you could just leave on the floor. So let it go. But we have a great opportunity here to continue our lab practice and we can take inspiration from Inky the octopus So bring a sense of curiosity about your surroundings. Like, what is the aquarium that we might be stuck in that's actually (laughs) created from our own mind, you know? Created from our own thoughts and and ideas. What's the the, uh, jail cell of suffering that we've built? And are there actually spaces for escape within that? And if so, what are those? Does it have to do with the mind? Does it have to do with the world? Does it have to do with seeing uh, what I think about myself and what's actually true? So we have a good opportunity to continue our, our practice. So thank you for your attention. So we can sit together for a moment So connecting with your body, feeling your breath, 
feeling all of your tentacles and feeling your heart. Let go of the past, let go of the future, let go even of the present. Having gone beyond becoming with the mind completely freed, will be free from birth, aging, suffering, and death. Stay connected with your experience as you get up, as you move towards uh, doing some walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.